Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your amazing mercy to us. And we thank you, Lord, that you display your glory all around us, not only to tell us that you are there, but to communicate your love and your mercy and your power. Lord, help us this day to understand that the reality of creation causes us to respond in faith and obedience. That is the reality of all that you've made should cause us to bow before you and say how great thou art. Open our hearts today that we might behold your word. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. The Hubble Space Telescope is an amazing instrument that still is in operation today. It was launched in April of 1990, and it orbits about 347 miles above the Earth, going almost five miles per second. And the images that it has given us of what is up there, things that we have never seen, and things that we have seen, but not to this depth of color and brilliance, of course, because of its new technology. And the high-def pictures that you can get just by looking on the Internet are astounding. And so I ask myself this question, what do we learn from the Hubble Space Telescope? We learn this, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the skies show forth his handiwork, or the work of his hand, or his craftsmanship. Day after day, they speak about him. Night after night, they make him known. I'm sure that those who have designed the telescope and those who love to explore space have other goals in mind, but this is what we learn. God is the creator of it all, and how amazing it is. Open your Bibles to Psalm 19. We've been studying the Psalms for a while, and now we want to focus our attention on this magnificent Psalm. The psalm that C.S. Lewis calls the greatest poem in the Psalter and perhaps the greatest lyric in all the world. That's high praise coming from a man of letters whose doctorate is in literature. This wonderful lyric, this wonderful song written from David's pen. I mean, we can just imagine David, can't we? As a young shepherd boy in the hills of Bethlehem, watching his sheep late at night, laying on his back, looking up at the stars and saying, wow, this speaks of God. And every night I look up, I see more of God. And so David, later on in life, we don't know exactly when, begins to write down his thoughts, and the sweet psalmist of Israel puts a tune to it, and people began to sing it in worship, and David declares that God speaks in the skies. Isn't that amazing? God speaks to us. Now, if you were to look at Psalm 19, just trying to observe its major movements and divisions, you might say that there are three sections. The first section is the first six verses. God speaks to us in the skies, or in the heavens. 
And then verse 7 through 11, God speaks to us in the scriptures. We don't have time to get to this weighty subject today, so Lord willing, we'll look at that next Sunday. And then finally, God speaks to my soul. This general revelation of God in creation and this special revelation of God in the Holy Word is all designed to speak to me in, at my deepest point, in the depths of who I am to transform me, to rescue me, to redeem me, to inform me, to change me. God speaks to my soul. In the first, he is creator. In the middle section, he is lawgiver. And in the last, he is redeemer. There is the world about us. There is the word before us. And there is a witness within us, all telling us that God is, and God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It's amazing to me when we think back in history of men like Galileo, who, who were also very God-conscious individuals, scientists of a first rate, but individuals who understood that God was creator, and he was immense and powerful. It was Galileo who said that God has spoken to us in two books, the book of the world, creation, and the book of the word, scripture. And they called him a heretic. But all he was saying is what David said a thousand years before. And I think you and I often put forth a deaf ear to the message of God that comes to us through the world around us. Truly, this is my Father's world. And to the listening ear, all nature sings and round me rings the music of God's glory coming from all the spheres. And if this is God's world and he is the creator, he has intentionality behind his creation and he is communicating to us constantly. And that's the first thing we see in this psalm, that our God is a God who loves to communicate. Why, Jesus Christ, the epitome of God's revelation to man, of God's message to man, is called in the Greek the logos, which means word or communication. And whenever we want to do a study of something, we put logos at the end of it. So we have biology. The ology comes from logos. It's the study of. And theology is the study of God. And in the cosmos, we have the study of all that God has created. God is informing, and God is teaching, and God is instructing. Our God is a communicative God. How sad it would be if God, the God of all power and might and wisdom, made all this beautiful creation and never told us about it and never made himself known and never spoke, spoke to us specifically in his holy word. God loves to communicate. Here are more, a few more pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope. I had the chance to, to be down at the Nassau Space Ken Kennedy Space Center in Florida, and they have a lot of these pictures blown up, and it is amazing 
the larger you see them. But please understand, the pictures on the screen, the pictures on your computer, the pictures down at NASA do nothing to the reality. We just have a glimpse, don't we, of the amazing glory of God. But all of this tells us God is communicating. God is speaking. And his message is this, glory. Since man cannot see God and live, one theologian said the glory of God, those are the clothes that, man, that God wears so that man can see how brilliant the clothes are and understand how great God is. The glory of God is what emanates from his holy character, his powerful character, his merciful character. The glory of God is like the sun in its brilliance. And that's what the heavens are telling us. God is full of glory. God is great and God is gracious. God is majestic and God is merciful. The messages come through in so many ways and we'll explore just a few of them. But God is communicating to us and this communication is awesome. Addison in his wonderful hymn put it this way, what though no real voice nor sound amidst their radiant orbs is found. In reason's ear they all rejoice and utter forth a glorious voice. Forever singing as they shine, they say the hand that made us is divine. That's what creation is singing. That's what creation is saying. Albert Einstein, who is no mean man when it, comes to, when it came to intellect, and I wouldn't call him an orthodox theologian, but in his study of the universe, he said this. The human mind is not capable of grasping the totality of the universe. Good point. That's what Hubble is telling us. There's so much more out there that we can't even begin to contemplate, let alone examine. He said the universe, we cannot totally understand it. We're like little children entering a huge library. The walls are covered from ceiling to floor with books in many different languages. But the child knows that someone must have written these books. It may not know who and it may not know how. It does not understand the language in which they are written perhaps. But the child notes a definite plan in the arrangement of the book and dimly suspects someone behind them. I mean, it seems to me ludicrous for a scientist to go into such detail and then deny a creator. It was Sir Frederick Hoyle, who was a great mathematician in England, an astronomer, who said this, once we see that the probability of life originating at random is so utterly minuscule as to be totally absurd, then it becomes sensible to think that the favorable properties of physics on which our lives are based or depends are in every respect deliberate, <laughs> intentional, designed by God. And so God's communicating that in creation. He's communicating that he is here. He's communicating many of his other attributes, as we'll see. 
But God wants us to know that he's speaking. Creation is eloquent. And infused in creation is this grandeur of God. It's overwhelming. It's astounding. The facts are truly mind-boggling. And all it does is speak of how infinite and great Almighty God is. Notice, though, David goes on and says this creation in which God is communicating to us, the communication is constant, verse 2. It's not just here and there. It's always, day after day, they pour forth speech. By the way, the Hebrew word is like an artesian well that begins to pour forth constantly without loss of reserve the message of God. We're told in verse 1, the heavens declare. That word means to engrave on the skies. And now we're told that this message just keeps pouring forth day after day. And while you sleep, night after night. The message is always there. It's always playing. It's on a continual loop. The observable scientific data of the universe is God's speech. That he is amazing that he is great, and that he is here. Hayden's creation. Have you ever heard that wonderful piece of music? It was actually played at South just a short time ago. Corb Felgenauer, our worship leader, helps to direct the choral, uh, I just forgot the name of it, Steiner, Steiner Chorale from East Lansing. He helps direct that. And in our chapel... They sang Hayden's creation. And some of the people who are singing that don't know the Lord. But I've got to believe as they're putting to music Genesis chapter 1 and the immensity of this wonderful subject with this very reverential and awesome work of music had to have an impression on their heart that there is a God. And he is amazing. The message is constant. But David doesn't stop there. He says the message, the communication of this message of God is universal. That is, the heavens declare God's glory every day in every place. Verse 3 says, there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Now, by the way, the Hebrew here is a little challenging to translate, which means that some English translations have gone in two different directions. For instance... The New Living Translation deals with verse 3 like this. They speak, that is, the heavens speak without a sound or without a word. Their voice is never heard. And that's true. The heavens aren't audible in their speech. Although there are sounds from creation, it's not a language you can understand. It's demonstrative. It's displayed. It's evident. It's like looking at a beautiful painting by some master. Uh, and, and you say, that painting is great. The master must be great. He must be skilled. She must be intelligent. She must be uh, the best of the best. And when you look at creation, you say, the one behind that has to be amazing. But another way to look at verse 3 is the way the NIV translates it. And it simply says, there's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Isn't it interesting? Creation is silent, but it speaks everywhere. 
And it speaks in every language. And there's no people group. There's no nation. There's no tribe. There's no place where the message of creation is not already penetrated with the light of the knowledge of God. It's universal. Creation is a wordless book. And the message of creation has gone out throughout the entire world so man cannot plead ignorance. Oh, we try that, but it won't stand up in the final day of court. Every man is going to hear the voice of the stars. Every man will hear the message, the majestic message of creation and is accountable. And then David even goes on in his wonderful use of poetry in verse 4 through 6 to describe how impressive this creation is by focusing on one of the most impressive parts of creation, the sun. In verse 4 he says, the heavens, he is in the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun. Now that's significant because most cultures in that day worshipped the sun. Egypt had its worship of Ra, and the sun god, he was the greatest of all gods. And many of the cultures would bow down and see this impressive sun and worship the sun. God doesn't worship the sun. He's built a little tent for it. He's built a little home for it. And he commands it. He says, this is what you're going to do every day. G.K. Chesterton said, God says to the sun every morning, time to wake up and do your thing. <laughs> yep, time to wake up. And time to move across the skies and then go back in your tent. The sun's impressive, but it's part of God's creation. It's not the creator. It's not the power. Notice verse 5. This sun is kind of like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion. That must speak of celebration because of the wedding and glory, brilliance. You think about someone decked out to the nines because this is a great time of wonderful celebration. It's like a bridegroom coming forth with beauty. But it's also like a champion runner running its course. There you see strength. You see intentionality. You see victory and celebration. And then verse 6. The sun, it rises from one end of the heavens and it makes its circuit to the other end. Nothing is hidden from its sight. And you say, ah, oh, wait a minute, pastor. That's not true. The Bible's wrong. I've got one word for you. Poetry. That's what this is, Right? David's writing a poem. And do we not hear our weather people say, the sun will rise at such and such a time in the sun. Oh, did you see that beautiful sunset? And none of us bolt out of our seats and say, liar. We do that when their forecast is wrong, but not when they talk about the sunset. It's a normal English idiom. We use it in speech all the time. So now David is showing it's also a Hebrew idiom, and it's part of poetry, and he's painting a picture to us that the creation of God is impressive. And when the sun comes forth, it's a thing of beauty, like a bridegroom. It's a thing of strength, like a champion runner. But don't worship the sun. Worship the God who's in control of the sun. Now, we could go into great detail. We could spend a lot of time, and, and it would be time well spent to consider 
creation and its details, to look at scientific facts and see how all of those facts do show us the grandeur of God. But it's also time for us to ask the question, so what? How do we respond? When you have revelation from God, there are always implications. And I want for a moment just to look at four implications that actually come from the pen of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. When he talks about creation, and he talks about how this ought to impact your life. And in every context, he's showing creator God against the worthless idols that men serve. The first text is Acts chapter 14. You can turn there in your Bible or simply listen as we talk about these four situations from the sermons of the Apostle Paul. In Acts 14, Paul is in a rather small city called Lystra. It's in modern-day Turkey. And he was preaching the gospel and doing some amazing miracles. And the people in that town thought he was a god, and Barnabas was also a god, and they came rushing forth to offer sacrifices to these gods. And Paul said, no, no, don't do that. What are you doing? We're human beings just like you are. We've come to tell you good news, to tell you to stop worshiping false gods and offering sacrifices to those who don't exist. We're here to tell you about the living God, verse 15, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in it. So creator God who made everything. Now what can we learn from that creation? Verse 16, in the time past, God told the nations or allowed the nations to go their own way, but yet he didn't leave himself without a witness. What was the witness? He has shown his kindness in the heavens by giving you rain and crops from the earth in their season and plenty of food to eat so your hearts will be filled with joy. In other words, creation tells us that God is kind and he is so good to you. He is so good to you. He's the one who's designed the seasons and the fact that we can get crops from the earth and the rain to nourish those crops. And basically, our hearts are filled with joy in this life because God is a kind God and he wants to woo us with love. Romans chapter 2 says, don't neglect the kindness of God. Don't turn your back on the kindness of God. The kindness of God is designed to woo you into repentance. The kindness of God is designed to draw you to the God who loves you so much, to have you turn from the false idols and trust him, the one who loves you and has your best in mind. That's what Paul is telling them, because God has made everything. Now, he travels to a little bigger city in Acts chapter 17. This is the city of Athens. One of the most powerful cities in that day. And as he was walking through the marketplace, he saw nothing but idols. Altars and idols. They had a God for everyone. And on top of the Acropolis, they had the biggest temple of all. Still there today. It was there in 400 B.C. and still exists in the 21st century. 
And Paul saw an altar to the unknown God, and he said, now let me tell you about who this unknown God is. Where does he start? The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of everything he's made. And so now he's telling you he's ruler. He's sovereign. He's king. He's chief. He's the creator of all things. And in him we live and move and have our being. As the birds have their environment in the air, as the fish live in the environment of the sea, so mankind lives in the environment of God. In him we live and move and have our being. And he's not far from any one of us because God is everywhere. And the one who created you is not someone who can be worshipped in a little temple. He not, cannot be served by human hands as though he needs something. Why are you giving him food? He doesn't need your food. In fact, he's the one who gives everything to everyone. He gives you life and he gives you breath. And he spread the nations around in the world. Remember the Tower of Babel? After man was created, everyone tried to collect themselves into one nation, build one tower, make their name great, and God says, I'm going to disperse you throughout the world with different languages. He knew that if they stayed together, they wouldn't turn to him. So he spread them out into the world. And that's exactly what Paul said. God did this, spreading people out into all parts of the world with different languages so that men would seek him, so that they would reach out for him and maybe find him. And he's not far from any one of us. So creation tells us that God is kind and creation tells us that God is Lord. And we better stop worshiping idols. We need to seek the one who is seeking us. But then he goes on. Romans chapter 1. Now he's speaking to people in a very large city. And the Romans were just like the Greeks with their multiplicity of gods. And Paul says to them, creation, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities his eternal power and nature, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood by what he has made so that mankind is without excuse. Romans chapter 1. Wow, that's, a, that's an amazing implication, isn't it? God has made everything. And by right of creation, as it says in Psalm 19, God is speaking forth who he is. What can we learn from creation? Well, from the boundless expanse, we can learn that God is infinite. From the magnitude of the planets, that God is powerful. From the fact that they're suspended on nothing, God is wise. From the fact that sun comes up, sun goes down on a regular basis, God is faithful. And on and on, the invisible qualities of God are made known by what he has created. Only God could come up with this. And therefore, no one can plead ignorance, and we are without excuse. But Paul said there were many people there in Rome, although you knew God, you did not glorify him as God, didn't honor him as God. You weren't thankful to him for all the blessings that he's given you. 
You became vain in your imaginations, and thus your foolish heart became darkened. And when your foolish heart became darkened, you began to live in all kinds of wickedness. And he talks about sexual immorality, the same kind of sexual immorality that is being proclaimed today as normal. The result of denying who God is, of not thanking him, and not worshiping him. That's quite a huge implication. And our society is living in a day where we can't even discern what is right because we have forgotten God. And we've ignored his word. And we've seared our conscience. And then Paul preaching in Romans 10. He actually quotes Psalm 19. When he says, you know, Israel's heard the truth, but they've disobeyed it. And because they've disobeyed it, now the gospel's going out to the Gentiles. And how will they hear unless they have a preacher? But in one sense, they've already heard. Chapter 10, verse 18. Did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the world. Their words to the ends of the earth. And he quotes Psalm 19. Creation is speaking And men are accountable, Jew and Gentile alike. And the reason we need to take the gospel to all people is because all people have a sense of God. God has already spoken. He's prepared the way. He's plowed the ground. Now we need to sow the seeds. Yes, some minds are depraved. Some hearts are darkened. Some consciences are seared. But God is the God who can bring light out of darkness and bring life out of death. And we are to take the living word of God from the living God to souls that don't know the Lord and proclaim the truth. This next picture from the Hubble telescope is a picture that impresses me with the fact that I'm a nobody. I mean, do you ever think of that when you look up at the heavens and the magnitude of all that is out there and you say, who am I? That's, by the way, Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him? In light of the fact that God has made the heavens. And yet I find out from this book, and even from creation, that God loves me. That I'm made in the image of God, and God is speaking to me because he wants to rescue me. The question is, not is God there? The question is not even this, is God speaking? The question is, Am I listening? It was Annie Dillard who said, the question for the agnostic is, who turned on the lights? And the question for the person of faith is, whatever for? It's the why question. He's speaking to me. Am I listening? John Piper tells the story one 4th of July where he and his family were sitting on a curb in Minneapolis watching fireworks, and the fireworks were pretty amazing. They were shooting off high in brilliant colors, and everyone was ooing and eyeing, and your whole body trembled at the explosion of the next firework. And then Piper said he noticed in the sky a big ball of light slowly ascending. We call it the moon. And no one paid any attention to it. The moon is about a half million times higher than the fireworks and goes thousands of times faster. And while there's power in the boom of a firework, 
The power of the moon lifts the seas. Wow. And yet everyone was focused on what man could do with a little bit of light and noise and totally overlooked what God does every day and what he says. God is speaking. Are we listening? Let's pray. The heavens declare the glory of God. But although they knew that, they wouldn't glorify God as God. Nor were they thankful to him. And that's when they became vain in their imaginations. And their foolish hearts were darkened. And they worshipped the creature instead of the creator. And their lives were given over to sin and its consequences. O Lord, rescue our generation by the redemption that is found in Christ alone. In whose name we pray. Amen.